Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, it's good to be back to bees again for this episode. Yeah, Preston, this is a topic that we both love talking about. And today we have a really great guest, Tammy Horn Potter, who is the Kentucky State Apiarist. And she also is the author of several books. And today we're going to be talking about her book, Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped a Nation. Absolutely fascinating conversation. For the listeners out there, we did split this up into a two-part series. So part one you're listening to now will take us through about World War I. So make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you can be notified when we drop the second half of this episode. Without further ado, let's get right into the conversation with Tammy. Welcome to the podcast, Tammy. To kick things off here this morning, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background, education, and career history? Sure. My name is Tammy Horn Potter, and I am currently serving as the Kentucky State Apiarist for the Kentucky Department of Agriculture. And I became the state apiarist uh, through what I call a dog-legged path. Um, When I first went to college, I was determined never to do anything in science, math, or agriculture. (laughs) I hated all three. And I hated them equally, furthermore. But as I was finishing my doctorate in English literature at the University of Alabama, I started helping my grandfather in 1997 with his honeybees. And that became just this very transformative moment for me that entire summer that was in 1997. And so I initially, started helping him because uh, he had reached a point where he had 60 beehives and his Parkinson's was hindering his ability to work hives. And so I became fascinated by just the topic of honeybees and the cultural icons that uh, surrounded us, you know, that were bee related. And so for, I I guess, uh, the next I would say five years, 10 years, you know, much of my interest was uh, related to that. Uh, It would be more, I would consider it a social history and cultural history. And so uh, out of that interest came, you know, uh, the first book that I wrote uh, called Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped a Nation. And that led to a serious interest in the sciences and agriculture, and that led to more books. And so I'm an example of somebody whose hobby became a career, I think is the best way to put that. That is really interesting, especially when you mentioned that you basically hated all aspects of your <laughs> of your current career. <laughs> not, well, not a lot of people probably take that kind of a career path, but it's interesting that you were flexible and willing to take on new things. Well, the irony, of course, is that now I do all three every day, and I love all three. That's the irony. <laughs> yeah. So the lesson for students that are listening out there is, don't close those doors. Be open to wherever your career takes you. And not just that. I mean, for students out there, all skills can be used in other fields. You know, so being an English professor uh, gave me a, a set of skills that I can apply towards my current position as a state apiarist. I continually write grants. 
I help professors at our flagship universities write grants. Uh, this is good for our state. So this is the kind of thing that, you know, you should never, ever see. I, sometimes I, I'll kid folks and say in my wild misspent youth, I was an English professor, but I have actually <laughs> found that it's a very good card to have in my back pocket. Absolutely. And for all the listeners out there, you're, you referenced your first book, Bees in America. I just recently finished listening to that on audiobook, and uh, it's a great book, really interesting, as you mentioned um, you have an interest in in all of the imagery that surrounds bees and throughout the history of America, how that has come to be and how that's kind of evolved over time. So we'd love to talk about that book here today with you. And let's start at the very beginning. So honeybees are not native. The European honeybees are not native to North America. So how did they get here in the first place? European colonists brought them over in the 17th century. Uh, we have some clear records uh, that English colonists who also wanted to bring over apple trees needed pollination, of course. And so they made several attempts, some of which were more successful than others. Uh, but, you know, certainly by the 1720s, 1730s, uh, there had been some stocks of bees that had arrived and intact and uh, were functioning. And so those are the first records that we have of honeybees succeeding. And from, you know, just the way that the nature of colonization in North America went, uh, the honeybees in many cases did better, succeeded more, were healthier than many of the colonists. And uh, the, that's a tribute to the Native American forestry practices that were in place throughout the East Coast at the time. The Native Americans took very good care of the forests. And in some of the cases, there is a type of species of tree uh, called a black gum. And that, you know, most trees decay from the inside anyway, but black gums especially provided safe places for honeybees to swarm to. And so much so, that uh, one of the first, you know, I guess, linguistic contributions that is bee related um, to the English language came to be called a bee gum. And it, and it comes from the fact that there were so many swarms that would uh, create their new homes in, in the interiors of black gum trees that the term gum came to be synonymous with a beehive or a colony of bees, or and another term would be bee stock. Well, that's that is really interesting. So they once they got here, obviously they thrived in this environment. But on the trip over, I, I mean, I'm just kind of curious. I, I mean, they obviously had to be cooped up on a ship for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Was that a challenge for to bring them, or or how did that? Oh, absolutely, go? absolutely, because at that point in time. Uh, I think some of the settlers of the colonists would try to transport them in uh, a, a woven type of hive that we would call a skep. Uh, the term skep, S-K-E-P, is Scandinavian for pot, but it was woven grasses, basically. And so they would try to, to transport these skeps on ships 
you know, that we're also carrying livestock in the bottom of the hold. And that could be <laughs> tricky wow. to say the least. And so some ships would actually have like a small, you know, like a, like a John boat, for lack of a better term. I'm not a nautical person. Please hope your listeners forgive me for that. But, you know, they would have, there would be another little boat right beside the main ship where they would sometimes keep their beehives too. Um, and, and then sometimes they just, they did not survive the, the trip. There, there is recorded instances uh, back when travel was, you know, going between the two continents uh, where uh, bee skeps <laughs> did, did, did okay, enough so that they arrived quickly. Um, they were similar challenges when English colonists tried to take hives to New Zealand and Australia, as you can imagine. But they did, you know, somehow honeybees, honeybees are, are, are very hardy <laughs> and can, can take a lot. And so they, they uh, eventually did arrive and did do well once they arrived in North America. Wow, it's just almost incomprehensible that they could travel, you know, those hundreds of miles across the ocean. I, I don't even really know what the distance is, but in the, you know, the rudimentary hives, they didn't have the solid Langstroth hives mm -mm. that we're all familiar with today. So it obviously was a huge challenge. And then, you know, I don't know if they had a way to keep them contained, or as you mentioned, they get out with the livestock and the the other people. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that was a, I, I just <laughs> imagine it being almost impossible, but obviously they got them here. You know, uh, one thing that I have wondered, and, and I typically don't discuss this much, but I wondered if they didn't try to transport them when the hives were in winter cluster. You know, in other words, when temperatures were below 55 degrees, those winter clusters don't tend to fly. You know, they want to stay together. And so if they were making that voyage, you know, it, I, I think many of us have this perception of the pilgrims arriving in November when it's cold and, you know, uh, and, you know, so if they were transporting the hives in the, the late fall or, you know, early spring, I can kind of see how that could work because you're taking the hives over in winter cluster and they are consuming honey, um, but they're not wanting to fly if the temps are below 55 degrees Fahrenheit. So I, that's a, uh, that's a hypothetical. I'm throwing that out there. I, I'm not, um, I don't want to fall on this sword, but it seems to me like that could have been one strategy. Yeah, it seems logical for sure. I have absolutely no bibliographic references that say that that's the timing of the shipment of these early skeps, but if I were a ship captain and I were having to think about how I would transport bees, I would certainly want to time it so that they would be less likely to want to fly. Once the bees were established at the colonies, how fast did they start to move west? You mentioned the bees' propensity to swarm. Mm -hmm. um, did they move westward via swarming or did the settlers actually move them as they went and expanded Both. into the Americas? It was both natural, you know, natural migration on the part of the, of the swarming and then also human-assisted migration. But the bees were definitely ahead of colonists in many ways. 
I mean, they were moving ahead. They were moving further west and, you know, in many ways more quickly than many colonists were because that forest systems across the, the East Coast were, uh, there were plenty of healthy stands and uh, plenty of forage, plenty of gum trees and other types of trees too, for that matter, that swarms could take advantage of. So honeybees did better than colonists did initially. I think the other thing too, I mean, maybe to consider with the shipment of bees, and again, I'm going out on a tangent here, but you know what we are learning now from, from indoor overwintering by the commercial beekeepers is that if you can get colonies into a, a structure where there's no light and the temperatures are below, uh, say, like I said, 55 Fahrenheit, then they don't want to fly. And so while I know nothing about the shipping industry in the 17th century, maybe the holds of the ship were dark enough and cool enough that it would be like an indoor overwintering structure in Canada, for instance, right now. And so then you you can keep those stocks of bees quiet. It's it's interesting the amount of scientific discoveries that were made. I mean, as you mentioned, um, it's very possible that they kind of found out that if they carried them over at a certain time of the year or, or carried them west at a certain time of the year, they traveled better, maybe not mm-hmm. even knowing why, just kind of understanding that it worked. You know, William Faulkner, who was a noted Southern writer, said the past is not even past. And I have found that in beekeeping, you know, so I think one of the most interesting communities in uh, U.S. history has been the Shaker communities, and they did a lot with trying to do indoor overwintering, and you sort of think, or I thought when I was writing Bees in America, oh, how quaint, you know, Um, (laughs) what, those, those Shakers were bringing those bees into their dairy barns and trying to keep them safe from the winter winds and what a quaint notion well it's not quaint at all you know you have a noted commercial beekeeper like john miller um who is is doing well with indoor overwintering his hives and and he's and he's learning as he's is very open about from the canadian beekeepers who have been doing this much longer um, it gives it gives Canadian beekeepers having that having those bees in a constant temperature in the darkness, you know, for X amount of months gives them a brood break so that they can jump in and apply a varroa mite treatment and get their bees free of mites well in advance of the nectar flow. And so indoor overwintering is an as a its time has come again. It's, it's not, it's not uh, a, a new concept, although the technology that we have now makes it much more feasible. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes what goes around comes around and, mm-hmm. and not to get on a soapbox, but we have to be careful about dismissing ideas of the past as being old fashioned and antiquated. Um, sometimes like, you know, this is a perfect example. 
we learn a little more and we think, hey, you know, they might have actually been onto something there. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we now have the technology to provide ventilation, which, you know, those shaker communities didn't have at that time. Uh, that has ended up being a crucial factor. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, if I've learned anything, it's that. It's <laughs> the past is not even past, especially when it comes to beekeeping. That's a great quote. As we talk about the past, in your book, you talk a lot about honeybee imagery and how important that was in early America. I mean, the bees were obviously very important to them. They went to the, all the trouble of bringing them across the ocean. And so they were important to the European settlers there. But the, the bee imagery really was important in early America. Can you talk about that some? You know, to me, I think it's the imagery that was maybe more important than the bees themselves, because there were so many values attached to this image of a honeybee that we as a country still hold on to. Let's just review for a, a second uh, in case people haven't read Bees in America. It, the 17th century England was a time of immense turmoil. We're talking about overpopulation in England. You had changing land practices. You had many people uh, moving to industrial, well, not industrial, but uh, we'll say more metropolitan areas like London. It was, you know, depending upon who, you know, who your favorite scholar is, um, the little ice age was still wrecking havoc on agricultural practices. So food was in short supply. I think it is difficult maybe sometimes even now for us to remember how difficult it was to get food on a daily basis, but it was more so in 17th century England. So you had mass starvation, people who are, who are unemployed, and the authorities in England are scratching their heads because typically when there, when there is famine, when there is mass starvation, that's when you have political upheaval. And so the authorities did what any political authority would do. And that is, um, you know, they looked at that time to the Bible and chose this image of a honeybee which had not just, you know, this tendency to work for the benefit of the colony, but also it had the, uh, you know, unique ability compared to other types of livestock, if you will, to, you know, when the colony became too full, as was happening in England, you know, the, 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 the honeybee hive would swarm, that that was a healthy, natural response to overpopulation inside the hive. And so religious authorities and political authorities drew what I used to teach as a false analogy. They would take this natural phenomena and applied it to a social condition involving people. And, and it became the answer to overpopulation in England, you know, and they would use this icon of a hive swarming 
to help encourage young people, in some cases, maybe people who had um, a record, you know, a prison record, you know, this became a way for the, the, uh, the religious authorities or the political authorities to say, okay, you know, we have these colonies over in North America. And so, you know, you can make a fresh start there. You can, um, you can help our mother land here in England by reducing overpopulation, taking your skills and your talents over to the colonists and colonies and starting uh, a new chapter there. And so that became sort of a default approach to solving a very complex and difficult social situation. And, 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 and it worked in the colonies. Attributes such as thrift, which I think is an old fashioned word. I have no idea if the, your listeners will even know what that word means. But you know, this idea of saving, working hard, being industrious as a honeybee, those, those values there were taught just time and time again and associated in the hymns and the, and the sermons and all of the writings of the time. The honeybee hive ends up being appropriated to help deal with a complex social situation. And at the same time, it ends up imprinting upon this set of colonies a, a way of justifying, if you will, a rather weak social safety net that we still have in our country. Um, you know, I think in many ways, you know, one of our constant challenges is to try to remember not to blame the poor for A, not working hard enough like a honeybee, or B, not saving enough, not being thrifty like a honeybee, because it still seems like that's what we, you know, when we are wondering why there are pockets of poverty in the United States, for instance, we tend to want to just say, well, you haven't worked hard enough and you haven't saved hard enough. And that goes all the way back to the 17th century. And it's very difficult for us to remember that. This is maybe getting again into the weeds here, but even the term colony, do you, do you know the etymology of that term? Is that, uh, you know, did it, did they begin calling the colonies when they would expand into another region because of the beehives or vice versa, or did the, the terminology kind of evolve together? I do not know that one. I don't know the, the answer to that. It's a, sometimes I wonder about things that are kind of uh, random, but. <laughs> I, I mean, it makes sense to me. It, it's like the indoor overwintering theory that I'm <laughs> applying to 17th century shipping of beehives. I have no idea if it's true or not, but it, it seems to make sense. Yeah, interesting. Like the colonies are an extension of the hive, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just to make the point for maybe listeners out there who aren't beekeepers. Sure. Mm -hmm. Obviously, bees are a part of American culture going back to the very beginning. And as you pointed out, probably intentionally, or, or it was intentional on the part of the authorities. But bees, you know, are really tied up in the history of America. 
And a lot of the important inventions in the beekeeping realm that beekeepers are definitely familiar with, uh, maybe the general public is not quite so familiar with, but were here in America or, or were rapidly adopted in America. Some of them were from overseas inventors also, but can you talk about some of those? Uh, maybe we can start with the Langstroth hive. Oh, that's a biggie. Cause that's the, <laughs> that's the game changer, right? It's always going, you know, beekeeping is always going to be a backyard hobby for most folks. And I mean, across the, you know, I'm including Europe in that too. Until they, until somebody figures out how the, the beekeeper, him or herself, can manage that colony. Um, in other words, when up until Lorenzo Langstroth figures out that bees have to have a concept we call bee space, three-eighths of an inch between frames, right? Um, what, what ends up happening is that honeybee uh, skeps or gums will swarm, but, uh, but when they swarm into a tree, right, the beekeeper can't manage that. Um, you know, the, the hive builds its comb off of the bark of the tree, and it's very difficult for a beekeeper to see, for instance, if it has built a lot of honey, except by weight. If you can pick up a gum, you know, you can kind of begin to guess how much honey the honeybees have stored. Or if it's super light, then you think, oh, well, maybe it has lost its queen or something like that. So when Lorenzo Langstroth figures out that simply by creating these frames and, and putting three, you know, allowing three eighths of an inch between the frames, um, then, he, then a beekeeper can simply open a lid to a hive, pull out a frame and be able to check on the health of the colony. In other words, you can see if there's a queen or you can see if she's laying. Maybe you can tell that she's not laying a good pattern and that it's time to requeen. Or you can see frames of, you know, uh, honey that are ready to harvest. But so, so when he figures that out, it, it, he develops what we call the movable frame hive. And now, almost overnight, then we move from cottage industry, backyard beekeeping, to major commercial beekeeping on a large scale. It's also timed, you know, fortuitously enough for beekeepers um, so that, you know, they have access to railroads, right? I mean, the Civil War ends, but you've got this railroad infrastructure that can be used for commercial purposes. So for beekeepers now, it's, it's, they have access to a movable frame hive that lets them monitor the health and the honey production of a hive without having to disrupt it at all in any major way. You know, in other words, previous beekeepers would have to destroy a woven skep. There was no other way to harvest the honey from that. But with a movable frame hive, you can go in, you can remove frames of honey that are ready to harvest and put in new frames. 
And that leads us to another invention. And all of these, these inventions, these beekeeping inventions that happen basically like from the 1850s to the 1870s, we still use, beekeepers still use here in 2021. So the movable hive frame, a movable frame hive is the first one. Um, the, the smoker is, the, is another one that saw significant improvements. Now, other, you know, people have been using smoke like pipes and things like that for a long time to calm the bees. But having a smoker that is controlled um, with the bellows on it uh, is, the, is the next important invention. Um, there is a wax foundation maker that comes on the market so that all of a sudden now a beekeeper doesn't have to rely on honeybees to make the, the wax foundation, which is time consuming. Um, they can provide the wax foundation. And that shortens the time of uh, a hive being able to make honey. And so that becomes available. And then um, the fourth one is the honey extractor, which is built up on a very simple uh, principle of centrifugal force. If you have a salad spinner in your cupboard, then you can understand the same principle of a honey extractor. Um, the honey extractor has baskets that hold frames of honey. And um, it typically either has an electric motor that can turn those baskets uh, inside a huge barrel, if you will. Um, or you have a hand crank, which is what I started when I was helping my grandfather. We had a two frame honey extractor. And my job was to crank that thing by hand. Um, so those four inventions just finally make possible um, a, a honey industry for commercial beekeeping. And it, and it changes like within 20 years, you have uh, just this major movement. Um, and as I said, we still use all four of these inventions. I don't know that any other industry can say that. Uh, any other agricultural industry can say that, but uh, we still we still use them all. And and very much in the form that they were developed in at that time, right? I mean, there haven't been much in the way of changes. Other you talk about extractors putting on electric motors, which you know every beginning beekeeper should have the opportunity to turn <laughs> a crank for a while before they get a motorized one. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> You know, I showed my nephew is turned 18 this year. And so he's helping us um, harvest honey. And of course, we have a 20 frame electric extractor. And uh, so when I showed him, I still have uh, the two frame extractor that, you know, my grandfather had me um, extract honey at. And he, you know, he just can't, he can't understand that I did this for an entire summer. Uh, <laughs> it would be, I guess, like showing an 18 year old, um, you know, the different, you know, showing him a, a, a horse drawn buggy and saying, okay, that's what you take for Friday night, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, I started our kids on our, uh, I inherited, you know, it's probably a hundred year old galvanized tank crank extractor that wobbles all over the place. <laughs> yeah. so, so they got their start right, I feel like. <laughs> it helps them appreciate the electric right. extractor, right? Yeah, it, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And for the, just to go back just real briefly, when we talk about the Langstroth Hive and the frames with the wax foundation in them, for, for non-beekeepers or people that aren't familiar with beekeeping, basically we're talking about a box with you know, most generally 10, um, we call frames that sit in that box vertically and they have the wax foundation in there or you know nowadays plastic foundation in a lot of cases that the bees will build their comb on. And it's very um, uh, regular and it allows us to standardize things like the extractor. Mm -hmm. I realize that I am probably speaking in what some think Cyrillic. Um, so I'm trying to simplify as much as I can. Absolutely. You're doing an absolutely great job. But as beekeepers, we start talking about frames and things like that. And, you know, it's just part of our language, right? So we don't even think about it sometimes. And, and definitely, um, you know, encourage all the listeners to go read Tammy's book for more information on these topics that we've talked about. I mean, you, you know, going back to the honeybee imagery, you talk extensively about that throughout your book. And you, you give a greater discussion of these inventions also in the book. Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk real briefly about some of the inventors and some of the important personalities that came up with some of these discoveries. So you talked about Lorenzo Langstroth somewhat. But there are also some other important people that were involved in these advances, correct? Well, Lorenzo Langstroth is considered the father of modern beekeeping. I mean, he's, when we're thinking about the important personalities, he is certainly the beloved figure of beekeeping. He was a pastor. Um, he was a very kind person. Um, he gave generous, generously of his time and his knowledge. Um, so he, he sets the standard really high. Um, there are other personalities that, that end up shaping the beekeeping world. And I, I spend, I think, significant time in Bees in America on a, a French immigrant named Charles Dadent, uh, who was a committed socialist. Uh, he left France, you know, I think fearing another round of, you know, what he thought would be perhaps uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew was, was getting ready to come to power and, and he had had quite enough of <laughs> the, the first Napoleon Bonaparte. And so he made his way to, at that point in time, St. Louis was heavily French in Missouri and, um, and brought his family over. And I, I, I kind of, am still astounded by his story, by the courage that anyone who is an immigrant has within their hearts to go make a new life into a, a land that they don't know. Uh, he did not know English. He subscribed, I think, to the New York Times for the rest of his life in a better effort to improve his, his English language skills. And he, and he became proficient in English and wrote extensively a very close friendship between Charles Data and Lorenzo Langstroth. And uh, the family, of course, still shapes uh, beekeeping 
in the United States with uh, the data. If you have bought anything from data, you know, it's that this is his family. This is his legacy. And so he ends up settling in Hamilton, Illinois, on the Mississippi River, offers many uh, people who are leaving um, the South, many Black people who are leaving the South, their first jobs. Um, he had, again, just this, uh, an entire approach to work that I think differs from many standard industrial factories at that time, especially. We're talking now later 19th century, so 1870s, 1880s. And he would pay people what he called by piecework because it meant that the worker would have a better paycheck. And this would drive his, his son crazy. I mean, they were, there were a couple of years where, I mean, they were looking at bankruptcy if, in fact, didn't, didn't go bankrupt. But, you know, this is Charles Data, and he is, you know, for him, you know, he wanted to do people uh, right. And so he's, he's one of the personalities that I, I'm still uh, in awe of this many years later. His writings, I still find fascinating, compelling reading. The other personality in the 19th century is the man who would start Bee Culture magazine. And that man is Amos Ives Root, who was based in Ohio. And Root had just this, uh, it was a, a, just a genuine interest and curiosity in how the world works. So electricity was one of his early interests. He put a windmill over his bee supply factory to, to harness wind energy. And his son would have nightmares of, of being woken up in the middle of the night to take advantage of a storm so that they could harness the, the, the wind energy provided by the storm that would produce X amount of wooden frames, for instance. Um, they, that, that was a short-lived spell in the AI root factory, according to the sun. Uh, that got old after really quickly. Um, but but AI root also, um, so, so both data and AI root established these bee supply factories to meet this ever increasing interest and demand for beehives and knowledge. Uh, both of these families end up producing magazines in um, the Davent family. They produce a magazine called American Bee Journal and uh, the AI Root Factory ended up producing a magazine that is now known as Bee Culture. In the 19th century, it had a more um, uh, fanciful name such as gleanings of beekeeping in the United States. It just goes on and on. I mean, it's all purple prose. They, they um, loved their uh, flowery names back then. Oh, you, you bet they did. <laughs> and so, but now, you know, uh, it's strictly bee culture. And, um, and, and uh, I, I, I want to say I get no kickbacks from either one of these magazines. Um, they are both still widely read, good sources of information, and are still shaping, like I said, the beekeeping community in the United States and the world. Thank you to our audience for tuning in for part one of our conversation with Tammy Horn Potter. 
If you've been interested in this conversation, be sure to check out her book, Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped a Nation. And if you'd like to hear the conclusion of our conversation, hit that subscribe button so that in two weeks you can be notified when the next episode is dropped. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.